Hi folks, this is the Cinephile Podcast and I'm Noah Walden. Thanks for joining us. We're lucky enough to have podcaster Dan Carlin on the show today. Dan is the host of two of my favorite podcasts, Hardcore History and Common Sense. And if you're not familiar with those shows, I really hope you'll check them out. Dan joined us to talk a bit about how Hollywood treats history and what he'd like to see on the big screen. It's a fun chat, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I enjoyed having him on. I was recently listening to an episode of Common Sense where you got into the actor Philip Seymour Hoffman's death, which I found very interesting for a number of reasons, in in part because I was a big fan of Hoffman, and uh, also because I learned in that that your father was in Hollywood, and then in researching a little bit further, I found that your your mother was a fairly accomplished actress. Uh, Yeah, both parents were in the film business, uh, and my grandparents on my mom's side were Connect. My mother, grandmother was a radio actress, and my grandfather was a, a business manager for all those Hollywood stars of like the Errol Flynn generation and stuff. Uh-huh. So, yeah, they, we have we have a, a background in the family in that. And so, uh, as a kid, what was your experience with it? Well, to be honest, we had a lot of experience with it, but but you don't realize that it's abnormal, you know, when you're young. Um, mm-hmm. I remember in the seventies, my mom was uh, in. in a while and we would just be playing around on the set and jumping over the electrical cables and messing with the lighting filters and all that stuff as kids and not really having any clear conception that this was any different than any other kid you know was involved in and I grew up in the valley in Los Angeles and a lot of the kids I went to elementary school or, or middle school with they were their folks were in the business too and our parents often knew each other so I mean I don't want to call it a factory town I think that would that would probably give LA a sort of a, a a mislabel, but when I was growing up, it just seemed like something that a lot of the kids' parents did. A lot of them worked for, like, the aerospace industry, and a lot of them worked in the film industry, so it, it didn't seem very abnormal growing up. And your mom was working with some pretty heavy hitters. Uh, she was uh, nominated for an Oscar for a film with John Cassavetes. Um, she worked with Milos Forman, um, and presumably some other people that were more in that kind of indie world, it sounds like. Yeah, I used to joke that, that my mom did all those indie films that no one saw, and my dad did all those B-movies that everyone saw. <laughs> <laughs> and dad, half of dad's uh, movie budget went into advertising. And so you get the kind of films that my dad was... I used to joke that they, people make B-movies, and my dad made C-movies. <laughs> um, but 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 it was they were really, yes, at opposite ends of the scale. Mom was more uh, 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 like a performance kind of person, and dad was more of understanding the movie business and being able to crank out stuff that he knew people would go to the theaters and watch. You describe yourself as, a, um, as an amateur historian, I think, or a history enthusiast, but you have this incredible knowledge and uh, this wonderful way of expressing history. And I wonder, at what point do you just bite the bullet and realize that you're a historian? <laughs> well, I think when the rules were a lot looser in the old days, I mean, a lot of the people we still celebrate as great historians today from the past weren't people who were qualified by today's standards to be historians either. I think that along with a lot of other old professions, though, that, that history has become much more scientific in the past 50, 60 years, and, and specialized. And, uh, and I, was, I have a history degree uh, uh, from college, but it's not, an adva- it's not like a doctorate or anything. But, but you go far enough into it to realize 
you know, how sophisticated and, and nuanced and scientific the, the education is. So I have a great respect for the people who are legitimately, by today's standards, historians. If you're going to apply the old standard, though, a lot of the great Greek historians that I like to quote in some of my podcasts, you know, the guy who's called the father of history, there's no advanced degree there. So mm-hmm. maybe if this goes on long enough and, and, and true historians think the work is, is valuable enough, um, they'll call it some sort of, of history. But, but I think part of it is that I'm using the work of reputable people. So if it sounds a little like history, I think that's probably because I'm using a lot of good work by a lot of good historians. So maybe we're covering the fact that, that I'm not qualified to do this by using a lot of people's work who are. Which I think you know, every historian since Herodotus has probably had to lean on somebody and, and, and look back on their work. I, you know, they say history is written by the winners. It's really written by the people who are around a couple hundred years later uh, in most of the cases. A few thousand and people who could write. Let's remember that, too. People who could write. A lot of the people that get really kind of shafted by, by history are the pe- people that didn't write. And it was left up to whoever, whomever they knew who could write to put their story down. And sometimes they didn't have the nicest views of the people that they were. I mean, the American Native Americans did not write a lot of history books that we read today, for example. Here's a thought that came to me the other day when I was considering this interview was that, for me, I think that there's a moment in life that gels me both as a movie lover and a history lover. And it was watching Peter O'Toole in Lawrence of Arabia. And I, and I have this very vivid um, memory of that, like it, it, watching it as a daytime show and, and how it struck me on, on so many levels. And, I, and I, I went on to get a degree in Middle Eastern history. And now I, I, I've worked on movie websites for many years. And I think that there's a singular moment there where that movie, like, calcified in me this, this love uh, and desire to gain more knowledge of these two subjects. Uh, is there anything like that? Is there a movie that you can look back on that had any, any similar effect on you? Well, you picked a really singular film. I mean, that, that, that's a great, great film, regardless of, of the genre or anything, and really well done, part of an era where they produced a bunch of historical films. I mean, I think from 1960 to 73, 74 was an era of big-budget pictures where they tried to do these kinds of more nuanced... Um, it, was a, it was a strange area in education, academia, society, and the films that represented some of that. And, and I don't... I mean, you could not have picked, I don't think, a better example of a really well-done... Um, history movie, and I have to always put these parameters on myself. I'm such a tough grader that nothing meets my my standards. I'm such a stickler, but Lawrence of Arabia is so close. That's a really great film from an era where that was a... a, I mean, I don't think we do anything like that today. And Anything you would want to pick out from the historical genres today um, I think pales in comparison to something like that. I don't know that there was any single film that comes to mind um, that motivated me that way. Um, I was always a big reader, and so mm-hmm. if something like that did get me excited about the subject, I would start go, start reading about it, and then you instantly find out all the things that the movie got wrong, and that would always disillusion me and make me mad. And so I'm always I'm a terrible stickler and critic when it comes to movies. I would be no fun to watch it with. Um, but but so for me, it's always a comparison between what I'm seeing on the screen. And, and how real that seems compared to what I read in a book somewhere. But Lawrence of Arabia, not just because of how well they did that film, and not just because 
outrageously fantastic acting in it. But but uh, I, I think it was a time and a place in movie history that just doesn't exist anymore and sort of a high watermark for at least attempting some of those really difficult, very hard to shoot, and very nuanced and sort of slippery subjects. Yeah, it is. Uh, in, in such a pivotal point in history, you can go back to that, the fall of the Ottoman Empire, and then what uh, Lawrence and, and Churchill and others do in helping divide up the, uh, the Middle East and, and set the stage for our modern politics. Peter was in another film that I thought was a very good historical example, also from that same basic time era. He did Beckett with, uh, 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 with Richard Burton, and I also thought, my goodness, that's a better film than we make today on history subjects. And it was just a time and a place where you had a bunch of great directors and screenwriters and everything and obviously great actors working to bring this material um, into some sort of light that made it contemporary and interesting in ways. I mean, let's compare it to a movie that I just absolutely couldn't stand. And I think I think is a perfect example of what you run into today. Oliver Stone's, um, Ale- recent, not that long ago, I guess, Alexander the Great film uh, starring Colin Farrell. I mean, mm-hmm. compared to the Lawrence of Arabia you mentioned, or Beckett, or any of those movies that were more from that, that sort of high-watermark era, he had so many tools that those earlier directors never could play with and ways to make that story even more real. And I think it's a disaster of a film on so many levels. And you just sit there and go, how can somebody who can learn from those earlier films, too, and build upon them and see where they went right, and see what, how could we be making worse films than we did then? But I think we are, and, and certainly not capturing the nuance or anything. And right. so um, it would be interesting if we could bring to the young people today uh, some of the films that, that did the same thing that Lawrence of Arabia did for you to them. Right. And not an easy thing to do. I, I thought you might bring up Beckett because it is uh, it's such an important film and a great one from O'Toole and another actor we lost recently, um, not to heroin, thankfully. Um, but you know his his depiction of uh, is Henry the Second is that right? Yeah, well Henry Henry the Second is uh, is O'Toole and Burton portrays uh, 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 the Archbishop uh, uh, Beckett Thomas right. Beckett. Right, right. Uh, that's a fantastic one, and uh, there's so few movies that uh, even even good movies that dwell on history uh, tend to get things wrong. Um, so I'm, I, I wondered about that for you. Like, is it? Is it impossible for you to get past it in a movie like, oh, I don't know, like when Gladiator has um, uh, German Shepherds, which didn't exist as a breed at the time? Does that does that make it unwatchable for you? Oh, a movie like that's unwatchable to me from the get go. The, <laughs> the only thing, you know, there are there are certain things that are useful, and that and that I I have a problem. I'm one of those people that can't visualize something theoretically. I have to see it. Mm. And in studying ancient military history for a long time, there's just things that don't make sense. You kind of have to grab 10,000 men, put them in armor, throw them on a giant plane, and kind of see what it looks like for me to get it. And films like Gladiator and some of these other films, for me, are only useful because they put the people down there, they shoot the video, and I have a chance to, or film, and I have a chance to kind of look and see what they look like. So the very beginning of Gladiator, which starts off as as a war moment between uh, Roman imperial troops and some of these Germanic tribes. It's interesting for just a couple of seconds, just to see how they make it look and some of the things. And after that, I'm gone. I mean, I couldn't, I, wa- I walked out of that one. Um, but I mean, that's, that's not abnormal. Uh, the, to me, the grossest 
miscarriages of good stories are the things like the 300 film and the uh-huh. sequel that's coming out now dealing with the Spartans and the Persians. And, and I guess I have no problem artistically with the director doing anything they want, anything. I mean, the total freedom. But what I mind is if director A decides that I'm going to have total freedom with this particular historical story, he's going to basically write that story off for any future person to use for a while. For all intents and purposes, it takes it off the storyboard. I'll give you an example. When Oliver Stone did his Alexander movie, there was another Alexander movie in the works. Martin Scorsese was going to do one, and I actually think I recall... Leonardo DiCaprio being, um, which I thought would have been terrible, but 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 put in the lead role for Alexander. Now I think, obviously, now that we know how Stone did, I think it would be a much better film no matter what happened. But when you consider that that I've always thought Alexander's Macedonian Macedonian um, people at that time resembled a mafia crime family in in its dynamics and in so many other ways, right. I thought, my God, who better to do a mafia crime family movie than Scorsese? You know, mm-hmm. be a very interesting different way to look at it, but because Stone did it, and because he beat Scorsese to the punch, Scorsese can the movie. And so, you don't get to see both artistic visions. The one supplants the other. When I remember when Oliver Stone did the movie about, which is essentially a historical movie, The Doors, about Jim Morrison, and then it came out and everybody screamed and yelled that it wasn't historical, including relatives and friends of Morrison. He said, well, of course, Stone said, it's not historical. This is my view of what I thought Jim Morrison's life was like when I was in Vietnam listening to his music, which is perfectly fine as an artistic um, direction that a director could choose to take. But he's also managed to take Jim Morrison, who's an interesting story, off of anybody else's storyboard for a decade or two until that story becomes new again. So that's what bothers me. So you take this wonderful story that should be told between the Spartans and the Persians and that massive Greco-Persian war that's so important, and because you do a comic book version of it, now nobody can do the historical version for a while. So that's what I hate about that. But that's not the director's fault. You know, there should be room for a historical tale like that. It just doesn't work that way when you're talking about funding big-budget films, though. Is it better to do something that's completely ridiculous like that, where you have a nine-foot-tall Xerxes fighting against the Spartans? Uh, Is that a better thing to do than to get it almost right, but to get some really pivotal things wrong, Uh, you know, which, which is a worse assault on history? Well, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm such a purist. That's a tough question for me because you're basically asking what parts are you are you happier with them getting wrong? And I'm not sure. I always try to put myself in the position, and I never thought of myself as a perfectionist in life. And 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 Lord knows, if you saw my office, you probably wouldn't think that way either. But apparently, when it comes to doing these history shows, because you, you, they take a long time, and we get a lot of complaints about how long they take. But we're sticklers. And what's more, we still, I mean, we're obsessed, and we still get things wrong. So I'll cut all these people some slack because it's easy to get things wrong. I think one of the things I liked about those films during what I called the high watermark of historical movies, you know, 60 to 73 or 4, I think one of the things I liked about them was this real attempt to deal with nuance, Mm -hmm. which is so hard. Um, because one, it takes more time, and if you're trying to, to cram a story into a, a certain number of minutes, and then you start talking about showing multiple angles and multiple views and gray areas, that's just more screening time you're eating up. I understand that because I can see how long my stories get when I try to include those kind of things. 
But when you do, you have a much more three-dimensional, I would say a much more satisfying and, and human portrait at the end. I think, I hope, one of the reasons people like what we do is because we give you something that you don't get much these days from historical movies and whatnot. For that reason, I don't know how much you'd like what we're serving if everybody did it, but because they don't, it sort of fills a vacuum. Um, but that's what we try to do. We try to get all those little details right and the nuance as best as we can. Obviously, you know, these are, I mean, come on. We, we all have to understand that we're only going to get so close and that the cultural differences alone between us now and whomever we're trying to talk about is going to make understanding them impossible. But you can try to give people a bit of a feel, and that's what you're after. And when it's already such a hard thing to do, when you start saying things like, you know, what would make this movie better, a 12-foot Xerxes, <laughs> I think, you know, you're already going to screw a lot of it up, even if you try your best. Once you decide to throw caution to the winds, you have a comic book movie, which is great, and there may be a great audience for that. I wish it just didn't take other directors and, and say, well, we can't do a movie about the Greek and Persian Wars because 300's out. I mean, that's what I hate. Right, right. And and maybe uh, and maybe for some 16-year-old boy, which I think is the target audience for that movie, um, they're going to see that, and it will turn them on to history. And and then, you know, 20 years later, they'll, they'll look back on it as ridiculous. But for the moment, it, it does make them actually crack a history book. And I know you love hypotheticals. If you're going to be teaching a class on history through film, off the top of your head, what movies do you include in that? Oh, my goodness. Uh, 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 is it a history of film or, or history through film? History through film, I'd say. I don't history think, of film's another I don't think the material. I don't think the material's there. I really think you, <laughs> there are certain high watermarks that you could go out and pick. But, I mean, for so many, I mean, perfect example, the era we just talked about, the, the famous Greek and Persian Wars, pivotal era in human history, what would you show? You know, do you go back to William Shatner playing Alexander the Great in the 60s? I mean, there's, it, it, it gets to a point where some of this stuff is ridiculous, and, and, and you have to ask yourself whether... See, here's the thing on something like 300, a perfect example of that comic book thing. There's a rationale where you can justify that. You justify it by saying, if you're a Spartan, or if you're a Greek person, living in that time period, the Persians in that time period are going to seem almost otherworldly to you. They're going to have a foreignness and a strangeness that can only be understood to modern people if you turn them into monsters, basically. Because if we showed real Greeks and Persians in that, in that 300 film, they're not going to be that strange-looking to us. Capture the way the Greeks felt about them, you have to strangeify them, for lack of a better word, um, for modern eyes. So I can see that becomes part of the problem when you're trying to say, okay, how does it feel to be a Greek in that time period seeing the Persians? They seemed like monsters and, and so foreign that they're almost another species sometimes. And so there are ways that directors can try to put you in to different positions. And I'm not against that. It just it kills sometimes the, the fabulousness of the story itself. So for, I mean, I think it's not an accident that when you have a movie like 300, it comes out in the midst of us being involved in, in a foreign war in that region, right? And so the fact that they're made otherworldly and completely foreign and strange and alien uh, is, you know, yes, it's the source material, the source material being a comic book, but the reason that it gets funded and made in that time is probably not an accident either. I think you've got to be careful of that, too, and you see that in a ton of films where 
directors and screenwriters who are trying to make a statement about contemporary times um, do so by finding situations that resonate from the past and then using that as a way to hold up a mirror to modern times. This is something that I always thought was so great about the original Star Trek TV series. They were so good at taking um, a contemporary issue and, and then filtering it through another lens and then showing it back to you. Uh, a perfect example was they had that one episode where they had these two people from these two different civilizations who were fighting with each other, and one, one of the peoples had one side of their body was black and the other side was white. And these people that they thought were inferior and, and, and subhuman and the whole thing had the same exact Harlequin look to them, but reversed. The white was on the opposite side and the black was on the opposite side. And it was meant to kind of be a, a, a contemporary comment on race relations and bigotry and prejudice in our own society. But when you had it shown back to you in that mirror, you get a different view of it. And, and that is an extremely valuable tool with all kinds of, of great uses. But from my standpoint, if I'm trying to do the definitive Alexander the Great, can we turn Alexander the Great into a tool that maybe he, maybe a little bit of a square peg in a round hole, maybe he doesn't fit perfectly, but the story is meant to show you a contemporary analogous situation, and, and so the story has to be made to fit a little bit. So there's some danger there. Um, your point about the movie 300, I think it's a perfect example. I think I think that you look and you say, hmm, okay, we can do a story from the ancient world that makes it sound like these wars between the Westerners and the Easterners have been going on forever, and this is a very similar situation, and it's a good time to do it now. And, but to me, that's essentially a fantasy film. So mm-hmm. I, I think the director can do whatever he wants with that. I don't really even think once you go to that length, you have any responsibility to the story at all anymore. The director should just take it as an art form and do whatever he thinks um, – best suits his art. As I said, though, if you're going to do that, I don't even know why you pick a historical story. Um, Uh Because the story carries itself on its own merits, and it's a shame now that this will take the place of that story for the next 15 or 20 years before anyone dares to make a remake. Right. Oliver Stone, who you bring up, is maybe a more troubling filmmaker. Uh, He makes a a very entertaining film in JFK, but does it obfuscate the truth uh, to such an extent that no one can ever pull it back out again. Uh, Stone's a great example of somebody who's, who's immensely talented, and yet the talent has gone, in the, my own personal opinion here, in a strange direction. I mean, you go look at his earlier work, Salvador was a very interesting film. Um, and it gets progressively, I mean, Platoon, um, I'm actually shooting for a very similar feel that I had when I left the theater after seeing Platoon in the 1980s. That's That's the mood I'm trying to hit in this next historical podcast I'm doing. So the man was very capable of evoking very specific feelings from the audience, and I find that to be a rare and valuable artistic skill. But a film like JFK is a perfect example to me of a man who wastes his talent by destroying a story, and then no amount of talent's going to fix that. You can't salvage it. I felt that The Doors was the same way. I felt like Alexander was the same way. The man's considerable filmmaking is handicapped by a need on his part to tell a story that has to be told a certain way and has to go a certain way. That JFK show through every single movie, through every single major conspiracy that's ever been postulated into a hat together. And I've never seen anybody even do that. I mean, just I thought even if Stone wants to tell a story about that, he screws up his own filmmaking by deciding to do that. But you know what? 
he's a he's a great artist who's done this for a very long time and and who am I to criticize him it's just my own opinion that he should have picked one conspiracy theory and gone with it <laughs> I, I understand that position totally uh, what what kind of historical value to, do you give to somebody like like a Sergei Eisenstein uh, when if you're looking at movies like Straka and Battleship Potemkin and October yeah uh, there, obviously, there's a propaganda element to those. They're they're coming out right after the revolution, and then eventually he you know ends up on Stalin's bad side. Is there a historical element to that that you you're gleaning something from that you you feel like it is a, a valuable resource? Well, it's a valuable resource no matter what. I mean, when the people from the future study our filmmaking to try to glean insights, though though they're going to be extremely useful to glean insights into Eisenstein's own time. Mm-hmm. And the kind remember he had very little artistic freedom at the bottom line level. He may have had some, I don't know specifically how much he had on a day-to-day basis, but everybody knew what the people who ran that country expected in the end. And so those are the artistic constraints he operated under. Um, and the penalty was death if you blew it. I mean it was not a it was not a light situation. Um, people like that though in the history of filmmaking deserve their place in the annals of the greats because they moved filmmaking forward. I mean, you can talk about the, the horrificness of the subject matter in, in movies like um, Birth of a Nation, the one that celebrates the Ku Klux Klan in American history and all this kind of stuff. Um, we still celebrate that film as the benchmark in filmmaking, not necessarily a benchmark in good storytelling, because the story itself is frightful. But the guy was doing, as a director, new things that had never been done before and that people who came after him would build upon. And so those people are foundational in the development of the craft, whether or not what they talked about or the story they dealt with bears any resemblance to the truth. In, 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 in the fact, in the future, they're going to look at Eisenstein, I think, the same way we look at primary sources from a written viewpoint today which when you get to upper division history, they start teaching you about what's called historiography, which involves the examination of the sources that you're looking at. And part of what you have to try to do is weed out their biases. So for example, if you're reading church sources from the Middle Ages, how did they view the world from a church-centered perspective that may change how they relate everything to you? In Eisenstein's era, we're going to be looking back and saying, okay, what was filmmaking like during the Soviet climate You know, with the artistic and, and, and attitudes that they had at the time? So he's going to be more valuable for us to study his own time period than he's going to be a, a good source for looking, for example, the wars that he chronicled in one of his works between the Teutonic Knights and, uh, and the Russians and the Poles and the Lithuanians. You don't look at that and go, now, what was it really like to fight as a Teutonic Knight against the... You don't see that. What you see is what filmmaking was like during the early communist years, and it's more valuable for that. Certainly, yes. Uh, and, yeah, and, and I, I had a similar thought about uh, D.W. Griffith and Birth of a Nation or... Uh, Lenny Riefenstahl uh, doing Triumph of the Will, where you know exactly another good example. That's right. Th- another good example. Innovative. I mean, she certainly filmmakers. she certainly knew what she certainly knew what her artistic constraints were when <laughs> cataloging Nazi rallies, you know. But but she did a, a rather unusual and artistic job of it. Absolutely, yeah. And then uh, we end up with some some beautiful footage of Jesse Owens running, thanks to Lenny Riefenstahl. Isn't isn't it strange how things work out? Even people cataloging things for all the wrong reasons can come up up with some interesting catalog material. Uh, So the the question I've really wanted to ask you, because I think that this is in your sweet spot, 
is I'm going to put you in the role of Hollywood producer, which I think is what your father did. Yes. And now you have the opportunity to make any historical epoch or anecdote into a film. What movies would you take on? And I, and I thought of this first. I'll give you a moment to ponder it. I, I thought of this uh, quite a bit when I was listening to you talk about the, the wars between Rome and Carthage. I know that there's been a, an effort for a while to make uh, a film of that. Um, the, the actor Vin Diesel has long wanted to play Hannibal, uh, which I'm sure you'd have an opinion on as well. Uh, but I'd be curious as to your thoughts on, uh, on both Vin Diesel as Hannibal, uh, who would play Hamilcar, and, uh, and, and what epochs you'd like to see done in, in film. What would interest you? Well, first of all, I, I can I can explain. I mean, this, this is a great way to to sort of tie up what we started talking with. Um, you talked about Lawrence Arabia, right? What a great film that was, and how much a person in a lead role makes that a great film. Because I can see that film with a whole bunch of different people in O'Toole's role, and it's not a classic. But O'Toole is not some action hero. He's not muscle bound. He wasn't muscle bound. He wasn't any of those things. To, to put these kinds of, whether it's Russell Crowe or Vin Diesel or Colin Farrell or any of these movie star types who who are like action hero-y into these roles is to diminish it all. You need fantastic, layered, nuanced actors of many colors. I mean, uh, uh, Heath Ledger was a wonderful, uh, he had the wonderful ability to do that. If you were going to look, I mean, if, if for, take for example something like Julius Caesar. Um, throw a Kevin Spacey in that role instead of the kind of people that Hollywood these days looks for for box office success, and you get a much more different inch. I mean, it, it, the Joker and Batman that Heath Ledger played, that could have been played so straight and so, and so normal by any number of actors, and the whole film would have been different. You need to be able to get these people that, I mean, if you're going to pick really unique, singular figures that we know today because they were really different and unique and singular, you're going to have to find actors that can bring that out, and they're so rare. We talked about Philip Seymour Hoffman a little earlier in the conversation. You do not get that many of those kinds of actors per generation. And what's terrible about our films today is that so many of these historical stories, you end up putting these action figures in there, you know, muscle-bound. And that, look, again, I have no problem with any of these genres of films, but if you're going to tell me who's going to play a good Hannibal, you don't want any of those action heroes. You want somebody who's going to be able to bring a certain pathos to the role that is so overwhelming that it spans generations in his family. This is a person literally born almost raised as an instrument of revenge. He's a brainwashed, multifaceted, obs I mean, and there's so many wonderful nuances. You're going to have to find an actor of uncompromising depth to be able to bring that out. Um, you know who I was thinking before we had this conversation, I was trying to think of some of the new young actors that I thought had the possibility to do interesting, different things with some of these historical figures. And I, I really like what I've seen, and admittedly I haven't seen a ton, of the, the guy who played the Loki character in the Avengers film. Huddleston? Isn't his last name Huddleston? Yeah, Thomas Huddleston. Yeah. He's excellent. He was just fantastic at that role. British, um, uh, uh, 
typical, I think, Shakespearean background that a lot of British actors have. And he was, I mean, I look at that and think, I could throw this guy in a bunch of historical roles and, and come out with something, you know, a little Lawrence of Arabia-ish, mm-hmm. maybe, with the right script. And, and so I feel like, any, I mean, God love him, Vin Diesel, I'm sure, could do a lot of great things. But you put him in a Hannibal movie, and I, I proclaim that movie dead from a historical interest standpoint right from the get-go. I agree. And a typical Hollywood casting mistake, by the way, today, which I would say is part of the reason why they don't make films about history as good as they did during its, its golden era. During the age of uh, a thousand extras, they really yes. you know, put it all out there. And so, it doesn't mean they made great, because there were a lot of real clunkers in those days, too. We just forget about them because they didn't stand the test of time. But I don't think you judge films on the, on the pedestrian, you know, everyday film. I mean, you take the great, the great ones from each generation and match them up. And, and I think from a historical standpoint, 1960 to the mid-1970s, I don't think anything compares. I, I'd concur. And, yeah, there's a lot of movies that are uh, lost to history, so to speak, uh, and in the same way, a lot of great stories are lost to history. And, and what, which of those would you uh, like to see shot? You're the Hollywood producer. Oh, I think, I think, and, and, and I, have a, I have a bias. I mean, there's so many great stories, for example, out of China uh, that we in the West don't even know. Um, but, mm-hmm. but I'm obsessed. There's certain people I'm just dying to see a great portrayal of. Julius Caesar is incredibly interesting. Would love to see a portrayal there. There's people like Ivan the Terrible in um, in Russia that are just they're such twisted, interesting, multifaceted human beings that they that you shouldn't even need to embellish them. Find a great actor to put in the role and let them go. I mean, I feel like sometimes scriptwriters always have to feel like they need to pump up this or that element of the script for dramatic purposes. But if you're picking the greatest, most dramatic stories in history, I would suggest that that's the time you can lay off the steroids for making something more dramatic. The story, I mean, this is one of the things we do with our history show. I have a huge advantage. I can pick from the greatest stories of all time. So if I can't make it interesting when I'm starting, you know, it's like hitting a triple in baseball and starting on third. I mean, if I can't make the Punic Wars interesting, I'm an idiot. You know, these guys are picking great stories. Put the right actors in there. Don't mess with the, the tale too much. Do the best job you can turning it into a screenplay and let them go. Absolutely. I, I think uh, you, you're right on the on the head of the nail with Heath Ledger, uh, another guy who's similar to Philip Seymour Hoffman, uh, gave into his lesser demons, and uh, we lost way too early and who had so many more roles ahead of him. Uh, and, and hopefully we'll see some more. Yeah, but how many great actors are like that? You don't think O'Toole and his friends had demons? My gosh, they just lived. <laughs> They're amazing. It's amazing that that generation got through as many as they did, that Richard Harris and Peter O'Toole. Oh, and, Burton and, and Harris Burton, and, yeah. and, and O'Toole and all these guys. What incredibly larger-than-life actors were they? But how, I mean, have we seen, I don't even think, you know, the best today, I, I think from an American, Robert Downey Jr. is fantastic. Um it would be interesting to see him in some of these historical films. He could play some of these Romans, not Caesar, but he could play some of these Romans, I think, rather well. Uh-huh. Um, I don't even a Hannibal. I would take him over Vin Diesel for Hannibal sure. right now. <laughs> Kevin Spacey, I would take um, these actors who can bring something really. You know, you, you may look at them and say, "Well, that's not who I physically see in the role," but that's a lot less important than bringing out what makes that person memorable. And I don't know how big Hannibal's muscles were. It really isn't a big deal in the story, but his personality and all and, and, and all that—that's that's Shakespearean in terms of its tragedy and, and 
pathos and everything else that goes into it. Absolutely, yeah. Um, I, I wondered too, as you you were speaking about like these great um, Chinese stories. There's uh, for the first time um, outside of the U.S. There's an IMAX film being produced, and it's Russia's take on Stalingrad. Uh, and and talk about a cast of thousands in, in typical Russian fashion. They're throwing a population at this movie. Um, and it, it looks incredibly epic, and the reviews so far have been interested. And I'd, I'd be curious as to, I, I don't imagine you've seen it yet, because it's only just starting to make the rounds. Um, but I, I'm curious as to, like, your take on how other nations handle history compared to how Hollywood takes it. I think it's pretty similar. I, 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 think, I think we see a lot of the same trends from the more knee-jerk, uh, patriotism kind of trend, which everyone does. Um, you know, we're going to, I mean, I, I think it, it would be very interesting to see the Russian Stalingrad movie you're talking about, because that, of, of all the the World War II things you could think of that would be very hard, I think, to not overdo the super patriotism side of it, that would be a tough one for the Russians. But again, if, if they could, um, and, the, and the thing is, I'm sorry to jump around here, but now you've got me thinking about it. I mean, it's a perfect example about with the Putin regime almost starting to bring the Soviet era into some level of uh, respectable vision again. I mean, they're celebrating certain aspects of that earlier era. I would worry about losing some of the most interesting elements of that Stalingrad story between two grinding, horrible world systems. That, that cared nothing for them personally. I mean, either the Germans were going to mow you down in a senseless war, or your own commissars were going to shoot you in the back if you turned around and ran from the Germans. That, to me, is the human story. I think it would be difficult in the current climate for a Russian filmmaker who was going to try to get the, the government behind him. This could be a, a, their version of a, of a rogue filmmaker, and then all things are possible. I don't think it's that closed of a society. Um, but I think Stalingrad... It, you know, in, in a war that they still call the Great Patriotic War, that's the epicenter uh, of their sacrifice and their moment of turning things around. I think it's very hard. You have to fight against a lot of very Russian rah-rah patriotism themes in that. The story is much more hopelessly tragic with no good ending if you look at it from the German side. They, at least the Russians get to win. You know, it's just as horrifying, but they get to win. For the Germans, it's the most senseless thing you imaginable. I mean... And that, to me, is another part of that, that story, is that when you take these horrible regimes out of it and you realize that so many of the people who are involved in, and caught up in, this, in these world events are just people like the rest of us, there's a bazillion tragedies in every one of these wars. You know, family tragedies, ripple effects, children who never have parents come home. I mean, the, the ripple of pain that emanates out of all these stories, that's what you, you – if you want to try to capture – Something like the Great Wars. I, I, I'm still waiting for a good, really good World War One film. Um, you need to somehow capture that that ripple of pain that emanates out a generation, two generations afterwards, and touches everybody. I mean, uh, the Stalingrad thing—that's a really emotional thing for Russians. And, and I wouldn't be surprised if the film turned out to be a little patriotic-like. But again, it's, it's like picking Valley Forge and telling Americans to, to make that movie and not have it be sort of you know, flag and, and country and spirit of 76-ish. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm reminded again as you're talking about like the, the smaller stories that make up each of these uh, major conflicts and, and of Eisenstein's filmmaking where he he had that knack for highlighting, well, the montages I think he was known for, but he, he could highlight the death of a child or an animal 
for such emotional effect. I'll tell you, though, I think there's a trap there, too. And, and it's a standard filmmaking tool. But take a look at something like Saving Private Ryan. The standard tool is to say, okay, we want to do a World War II film in that case, and we want to really show a more realistic view of combat and all that. But what we're going to do is we're going to tell a story about this one unit in combat trying to get blah, blah, blah. And so you focus on, on the people, and then you develop the characters, and you introduce the characters to the audience. There's a standard approach, a template, if you will, to telling these larger stories by localizing them and telling a story that's small, a small piece of the big story. The problem with that is then you see the film start to warp in favor of, okay, how can we have something dramatic happen to this little group of people that you, you've become invested in as the audience, and all these kinds of things. And then that, while it's a time-honored and, and, and much-used template, I'm tired of it. It reminds me of the State of the Union speeches that ever since the 1980s have become these things where we have to have people in the audience that we point out and say, and so-and-so is here who's serving on the front line, and you introduce them because it's become a part of almost the way that the ancient Greek plays used to be so stereotyped in what you can do, and the chorus has to come in at these ritualized moments. I mean, I feel like so many of our movies where we're going to tell the big World War II story has to focus on we're following this soldier around, Private Ryan, and we're going to tell his... And it's become so predictable. There have got to be, I mean, if you want to be an artist, which, and I love artists, you've got to pick a path and, and, and find your own way to do it. And I feel like these templates are old now. Uh, you need to go in there and figure out a different way to make us care about people without the traditional, okay, well, he'll have his buddies and there'll be the Italian guy and the New York guy and the country guy. and the, I mean, it becomes like uh, a parody, like, like uh, Mad Libs for movies where you just fill in the stock characters' names and, and come up. So, so I guess what I'm saying is that, yes, it's important to make them care, but if you're going to do a movie that's going to be as interesting as Lawrence of Arabia, you might have to find a new way to do that. Absolutely. There's one more thing I want to talk about a bit, and I'd like to get your take on every single second of the spinning of this planet is captured on a camera somewhere around the world, numerous cameras, and, and how does that affect history a hundred years, five hundred years, a thousand years from now, compared to how we look at it through the lens of what we have available to us. I'll take it back to this. We now know where Adolf Hitler was on every day of World War II. Uh, we, we've, we've been able to analyze uh, his records. We, we know where he was on each day, and we can create a picture of it. But now in our present day, we can create a picture of where every single person is on every single day, and, and almost moment to moment, and we have video to back it up. So what does that mean for history going forward? I think it's huge, and I, th I think it's huge on, on, on multi-levels. Uh, one, I think we've known at least about the great historical figures of the last 40. I mean, you, you point out Hitler, that's almost... 80 years ago, and we know where he was on any given day, as you said. So to me, for the great figures, that capability has existed for some time. I mean, even Napoleon, you can tell where he is almost all the time. What this does is it breaks it down, though, to levels that are much lower. People who aren't historical figures yet, who may be great historical figures 15, 20 years from now, and you'll be able to go back and reconstruct where they were before they were worth monitoring or watching or paying attention to. But for me, the bigger thing is to three-dimensionalize um, the past in a way that you can feel and touch more. I mean, what would a picture of Alexander the Great look like? What would a color picture, what would a video clip look like? And you think about 
about how you take someone who is really to us nothing more than text descriptions on paper and turn them into something real. For me, real history that you can relate to begins when photographs start. And all of a sudden you can look, you know, I love to look at photographs and look at what's in the background, the stuff you weren't meant to see, and all the little things that show you what life was like for those people by looking in the background. Or combat photos. When you see a combat photo from the First World War, and you look into the eyes of these people and realize that at the moment that's taken, those people are going through an unbelievably hellish personal moment that you can't even understand, but it's, it's in their eyes. At, you know, you freeze this moment. I mean, what, what did Alexander look like while his big soul-searing moments of his life are happening? I mean, these days, Alexander would have a court photographer and documentarian following him around shooting video. He kept people who on staff who simply wrote down everything he said for posterity. These days, he'd have an, uh, 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 his own videographer who'd be keeping track of all this, and thousands of years from now, we'd have that. Can you imagine if we had something like that today? Imagine how real he would become to you. You could see and touch the past in a way that's really only been possible the last... 150, 180 years. Our great, great, great grandchildren are going to have a couple hundred years of history that they can see and feel and touch like that. Now, probably you could have a conversation with a bot of Bill Clinton that would be able to converse and sound just like him and reason in, in ways that were uh, created by algorithms to be similar to how he would think. It's, it's hard well, to Well, I'll, I'll throw you one better. If we really want to see what some of these historical figures look like, What's going to stop somebody from getting a hold of their DNA one day and cloning them? <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, uh, now, can you have fun with a movie about cloning Charlemagne or something? <laughs> or cloning Genghis Khan? Or, I mean, to me, that, that's a fun thought right there. Um, they've never found Alexander the Great's body, but if you found it, uh, clone the guy. You know, it, it, you know, it's a little like it'd be a little like the Alexander the Great version of The Boys from Brazil. Yes, yeah, you know, I was instead just of thinking, recreating yeah. Hitler. <laughs> <laughs> but but I mean I think I think when you start talking about what did Alexander look like and is there any way to find out? Yeah, there is. As soon as they find the bones, you could clone that guy, if only for the value of seeing what Alexander looked like. <laughs> you know, I think when I was a kid in the eighties, I used to watch the G.I. Joe cartoon, and I believe that the character of Cobra Commander was was comprised from the DNA of Alexander the Great and Julius Caesar and all kinds of other characters from history. I didn't even think about mixing them up, <laughs> making a hybrid. Yes, that was Can the idea. Can you imagine? <laughs> Just to create the most powerful Julius, <laughs> Julius Alexander the Great, okay. Yeah. Um, but you know what? I think, I, I think if you want to do a movie like 300, to get back and tie it all up in a bow, for me, if you want to make a fantasy movie, give me the Alexander the Great DNA thing. Uh, I, I'll take that. that. That's a more fun, interesting, different non-traditional kooky history film than, than, than just slowing down the blood and the gore. And, and truthfully, what I've always said is, is if you want to do a movie like 300 and you want to make the violence slow down the blood, make it splatter everywhere in a, in a comic book-like fashion, to me, that is a softer uh, version of what would really be shocking. If you want to shock your audience and make a statement, try to come as close as you can to showing what it really looked like. That will be shocking, and no one's come even close. I mean, everybody made a big deal about how Saving Private Ryan was so realistic and all that, and it was nothing 
mm-hmm. realistic about it because there was no artillery in any grand – I mean, when you talk about what made these modern battlefields hellish, it's what artillery did to people. And I remember watching Saving Private Ryan and thinking, well, shoot, if there's no artillery, maybe this is, is, is relatively realistic. But, but if you want to really shock an audience, you try to show a war movie of a big war, not a guerrilla fight or any – a big war, World War I, World War II, and show what things really looked like. And it's going to look like so much violence that it's shocking. Again, when, when Oliver Stone did Platoon and you walked out of Platoon in the 1980s, the feeling you had was like you had been wrung out like a towel, a wet towel that had just been wrung. And there was, it was a combination of feeling stunned and weird. And I remember you would walk from the dark of the theater and you'd been in the dark for almost three hours and you walk out into the light and it was the strangest lingering emotion. You know, you weren't sitting there going, oh, that was a great movie or I really enjoyed it or what. You, there was this very strange, almost surreal feeling. And I, I thought about that afterwards thinking, and that was a minor war in the pantheon of wars. I mean, if you were there, it was bad. But, but you talked about Stalingrad a minute ago. You show what Stalingrad really looked like, and, and that is so much more devastating than any comic book slow motion, you know, slashing with a sword. That will make an impression. And I think with hundreds, thousands of films and hundreds and hundreds of war movies, nobody's even come close to doing that right. Well, Dan, I want to thank you. You want to do an anti-war you. film, show, show what it was really like. Yes, precisely. And, and Platoon is that. It, it's a powerful anti-war film. Uh, and it is. It is. But again, as, uh, you're showing small-time war. You show the First World War and 25,000 guys dying in one afternoon. It's the, the levels are just, they bowl you over. I wanted to ask you real quick, when are you going to do uh, Napoleon? Um, I don't know. That The, the reason why is because, you know, and I, I learned this when we started dealing with, um, when we started dealing with Rome, um, we ended up doing a really, really, really long series on the fall of the Roman Republic, mm-hmm. and it had never been my intention to do that. I wanted to do a show on Cleopatra, <laughs> and, and the problem was is I thought, okay, well, where do you start a show on Cleopatra so that the Cleopatra thing makes sense, and we kept pushing it back and pushing it back and pushing it back, and all of a sudden you realize that because all of these events are interconnected like a bunch of falling dominoes, there's no logical place to start the story. And so I ended up starting at the very first domino, and by the time we got to the end, we never even got to Cleopatra. And, and, but the problem was is that there was no logical place to pick up the narrative from. Um, and I think, I think that's what you find with Napoleon, is that you sit there and go, okay, well, to understand Napoleon, you have to really understand the French Revolution, which in and of itself is this monumental story. Um, and if you start at the beginning of that, by the time you're done with Napoleon, that can consume... You know, I'm 48 now. That could take the rest of my life. Um, so, so, so I think I think at some point, what I need to do is challenge the French Revolution and see if I could get away with that, uh, with 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 my my sanity. And if I could do that, maybe go back later and tag on a supplemental Napoleon show onto that. The way that you approach things, you're going to need a, a huge amount of time uh, to to take it all in and to get it across with the the passion that you have. Uh, I can understand how it's daunting to to look at a figure like Napoleon and think, how do I, how do I give people a, a proper picture of this person's life? 
Well, or, or look at the French Revolution and realize how big of a deal that is to our lives today, and realize that when Hitler decided to invade the Soviet Union, he proclaimed this to be the French Revolution finally being decided one way or the other. Um, and, and, and you begin to realize how that, that single revolution, and again, boy, they're going to be able to say, well, why stop there? They were influenced by the American Revolution. You could just keep going and going. The British Glorious Revolution. The problem with all history being interconnected is you have to find natural places to say, all right, we'll start from here. We'll be like J.R.R. Tolkien, and we have to give you a lot of background to get you up to speed on who this Sauron guy is and you know, how, what happened in the age before this one. So, I mean, as a storyteller, you have to find these natural spots to begin. But my feeling is, is that it makes so much more sense if you provide extra background because people can then put it in a context. It's really hard if you're a screenwriter trying to keep your movie under four hours long to do that, though. Certainly. Well, Dan, I really appreciate you taking the time with us today. And uh, the, I, I found uh, this very enlightening and, and a lot of fun to talk movies with you, and, um, and I hope you enjoyed it. All right. Thank you, Noah. I'll talk to you later. Take care, Dan. Well, that was my conversation with Dan Carlin. I hope you enjoyed it. We recorded this a couple of weeks before the Oscars, and I missed the opportunity to talk to Dan about the great film 12 Years a Slave. Uh, maybe next time. Uh, but I hope you found something edifying and enjoyable in the conversation, and please check out Hardcore History and Common Sense. You can find episodes on iTunes or at dancarlin.com. Thanks for listening and for coming by Cinephile. Please keep coming by the site for fresh reviews, analysis, and opinions. And let us know what you thought about today's show in the comments section or on our Facebook page. We'd love to hear from you. I'd also like to thank Seattle band Red Heart Alarm for providing today's music for the show. The new album out this month is called Hammer Anvil Stirrup. And if you live in Seattle, you can catch their CD release at the High Dive on March 28th. I'm going to take you out now with one of my favorite tracks from the new album. This song is called Winter. Thanks again for listening. And I'm all